0: So the Bible reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, starting to read at verse 13, and it's page 966 in the blue Bibles in the pews. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared in in a dream to Joseph. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And yet you were pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon you, and by your wounds have we been healed. You are called Jesus because you save your people from their sins. And so, Emmanuel, be with us now. Open your word to our hearts, and open our hearts to your word. Amen. One of the hardest things about preparing a sermon is knowing how to start, how to make the connection between the ancient text and the modern congregation. It's heartbreaking that I've had absolutely no struggle today. Two thousand years ago, in the center of our passage, is the vicious, murderous hatred of Herod, ordering the destruction of the baby boys of Bethlehem. And just as we say that someone would turn in their grave if they were still alive to witness some awful thing, so Matthew pictures the comfortless grief of Rachel, the nation's matriarch, in her weeping and great mourning. Few crimes are more are worse than the murder of children. Few are so literally diabolical. And what do we see when we turn on the... A wall to wall television news from Israel. Well, even if some reports have been exaggerated and truth is always a casualty in war, there's no doubt that Hamas's raid on the 7th of October involved the cold-blooded murder of around 1,400 men, women, and children. Specifically, children. A large majority of those, 1,400, were civilians. And Israel's retaliation in Gaza has so far killed many more, including certainly hundreds, probably thousands, of children. I make no political comment about any of this. The pulpit is not the place for that, certainly not just in an opening illustration. But once again, we have weeping and great mourning in Israel and Palestine. The very place, the very geography where today's reading is set weeping and great mourning that seems only set to increase in the coming days. And those bereft voices are being heard today in Ramah and in Rafa both in Gaza and in Israel. So as we travel back this morning, 2,000 years, we don't really go very, very far at all. We take up the story of the toddler Jesus in a cruel world with violent men, Seemingly intractable political crises and great suffering and hopelessness on every side. What does God say to us today in a world like this? He says, here is my son. Here is my son. And in the three sections of this passage, uh, we will see that uh, Jesus, the son of God, comes to rescue a rebellious people. verses 13 to 15. And he comes in that central paragraph to comfort a crushed people. Rachel will be comforted again, verses 16 to 18. And he comes as the Nazarene, despised and rejected by worldly standards. But in the eyes of his father, the faithful son, and through the eyes of our faith, the precious saviour, And one day in the eyes of all creation, the mighty and victorious Lord, verses 19 to 23. If you were listening carefully, you will have noticed that Matthew uh, very uh, deliberately structures uh, this passage that Emily read for us. Now the two men uh, most mentioned are Herod and Joseph. We're meant to notice that and to contrast them. Herod the Great seemingly has all power. But his title as king of the Jews was given to him not by God, but by the Roman Senate. He was no descendant of David. He was a usurper. And he was known, all the ancient historians agree on this, for his fanatical paranoia and hatred. He murdered one of his wives, at least three of his sons, So that the murder of the innocents in this story is entirely in keeping with what history tells us about his reign. Herod was sustained by a lust for absolute power. And to outward appearance he had just that. He ruled uh, for decades under the Caesars. But one of the themes of this passage is that there is a greater power than Herod or than that which is in Rome. And it is the Lord who is truly in charge. And through his angel and through his dreams that he gives, he keeps Joseph one step ahead of the so-thinking, all-powerful Herod. For Joseph is charged with guarding the infant Jesus. And so he evades Herod's grasp by fleeing to Egypt, staying there until the danger is past and finally returning not to Bethlehem. Uh, where the new Herod is a chip off the old block, but to Nazareth in the rustic north. And where Herod is the epitome of godlessness, devoted only to his self-interest and self-advancement, Joseph, by contrast, is the model of faith. The Lord speaks and he obeys. And the pattern is repeated through these first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. He's devoted to the Lord. He's devoted to his son. He's devoted to his wife. It's fairly obvious which one Matthew intends us to take as our example. One more general observation before we dive in in more detail. Each of these three sections ends with a reference to an Old Testament prophet or prophets. An important rule that Matthew models for us, which helps us enormously when we read the Bible for ourselves, is this. We must read texts in their context to understand them properly. Uh, We've sung a version of that truth already in that uh, uh, hymn we sang at the beginning. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. How do we understand the word of God? By reading more of the word of God. And particularly where one part refers to another, read what it refers to in its context and it will illuminate what you are reading today. I hope we shall model that. Uh, Not, uh, because one of the great things uh, we try to do in preaching uh, is not to make you think, gosh, I can't read the Bible unless I've been to theological college. If we do that, we've failed. No, because God is his own interpreter and makes it plain. When we preach the word of God, it's to encourage you to go home and say, with the Spirit's help alone, I can read what God will say to me and put the different parts together. For yourself. Uh, let me just illustrate what I mean though, uh, with a really simple example about the importance of context. Did you know that the Bible says there is no God? Did you know that? You find that just a tiny bit surprising or unexpected? Maybe wondering whether rather than just enjoying the extra hour in bed that James reminded you about, you should have taken considerably longer. Maybe Richard Dawkins was right all along. The whole God thing was just a delusion. I mean, if the Bible says there's no God, then Houston, we have a problem, don't we? Well, now let me just set that sentence in its context in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, of course, that's an obvious and silly example, but you take the point, don't you? Uh, Take a phrase out of the Bible, and you can make it mean anything. Put it in its context, its immediate context, its context in where it sits in the unfolding story of God's salvation plan in Jesus, and then you'll understand it. Uh, And now we also know somewhat more accurately what the Bible would say to Richard Dawkins. Well, you can use that if you will. Uh, My point here is that as Matthew quotes from the prophets, he does so knowing and relying upon the wider context from which those quotations come. And so we're going to do a bit of work this morning at looking at those places that he quotes from because only there will we unlock the significance of God's word for ourselves around these simple stories of Jesus going to Egypt, coming back, evading Herod and being in the right place where he could begin his saving work. So let's work through uh, those sections then. First, verses 13 to 15. uh, Here we see that Jesus comes to rescue a rebellious people. Uh, On the surface, uh, this part of the uh, story could come from any time in history uh, when a despot tries to secure his own rule by eliminating the opposition. Think of uh, Trotsky's fate at Stalin's hands, for example. Uh, Herod had been told that the real king of the Jews had been born and where And so he sees his opportunity to neutralize the threat before he grows up, really, to become one. But unlike poor old Trotsky, who had no defender, the Lord warns Joseph, and he's immediately obedient. Verse 13 and 14, he wakes the family. They make good for their escape to Egypt in the middle of the night, and they stay there until Herod is no more. And now the explanatory quotation from the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my Son. In other words, uh, when Herod is dead and they come back, uh, the event narrated at the end of this passage, this will have been fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, now keep a finger in uh, Matthew 2 uh, and come back with me to Hosea 11. Uh, it's on page 907 in the Church Bibles. If you're clicking something, you'll have to work it out all by yourself. But uh, page 907 in the Church Bibles and come back to Hosea chapter 11. I'm going to set this quotation in its context. Uh, the Lord had given His message to Israel through Hazir eight centuries before Jesus was born. Uh, in those days, the people of Israel were affluent, but also corrupt in their dealings with both God and people. They were utterly disloyal to the Lord. Uh, they were both spiritually and literally adulterous. Just look at the description of them. We'll pick it up at the beginning of chapter 10 on page 906, verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. He was successful. As his fruit increased, he built more altars, that is, to foreign gods. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The the Lord will demolish their altars. And destroy their sacred stones. And the chapter continues in that vein. So God's people Israel were idolaters. They've rejected the Lord. They've rebelled against his word. So the Lord is going to come in judgment upon them. Out of their corrupt hearts comes arrogant rebellion. And soon they will face the consequences of their actions including verse 15 at the end of chapter 10, upon their own king who will be destroyed. Well, there's a pointer to Herod just before the part that Matthew quotes. But it will not be the Lord's last word. Judgment is never the Lord's last word. That's one of the things we're going to unlock as we look at the prophet's whom Matthew quotes. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord is still speaking. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's the bit that Matthew quotes. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the bars, and they burned incense to images. So what is Matthew saying here? Well, he's saying in Hosea, the Lord's son is Israel. He called him from slavery in Egypt and through the Exodus into the promised land, made him a great and prosperous nation. But Israel turned from his father. He turned away from God. He rebelled against him and then was exiled for it. But Jesus won't do that. Jesus won't turn from his father. Where Israel failed as the son of God, Jesus will be the faithful son of his father. He will be the true Israel. He will be the true son of God. And just as the king of Israel is also called to be son of God in a particular way, representing the whole nation, the history of Israel was that of a succession of sinful, mortal failures. And it ends up in Matthew's day with Herod at the beginning of the story when Jesus comes into the world. Makes the very term King of the Jews or son of God in that role, sound hollow and invite judgment. Jesus is the true son of his father. He is the true king of Israel. Or we can read on a little bit further in Hosea. Uh, What will this king do if he's the true son, the faithful son of his heavenly father? Uh, We'll just turn over the page uh, and pick it up at chapter 11 in Hosea uh, in verse 8. Now, this is the Lord's heart. This is the Lord's longing as his true son comes. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Another name for Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? They were cities at which, like the more famous Sodom and Gomorrah, perished utterly under God's judgment. Listen to what the Lord says here. Uh, through his prophet, the end of Hosea 11, verse 8. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One amongst you. I will not come in wrath. You see, Matthew intends us to understand that context of Hosea when he quotes just the little bit of Hosea 11, verse 1. Jesus is what Israel had always failed to be, the obedient son of the Father. And so the Father will preserve him from Herod and then call him back out of Egypt so that he can fulfill his Father's purpose. And it will not be to bring judgment upon a rebellious world, though our sins deserve it plentifully. No. His Father's purpose, because his compassion is aroused within him, is to bring salvation even to those who have rejected him and rebelled against him. Moved by sheer grace, Jesus has come to rescue a rebellious people. That's why this is the counterpart to the more obvious word at the beginning of this section. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Hosea underlines. That's why Matthew quotes it. Now, Because Jesus is true Israel, the true son of God, the true ruler over the people of God, that means that we are defined in our relationship to God no longer by being a part of a racial group, Now by being in the Son of God, by looking to him who is truly the Son of the Father, in him is grace, in him is all authority, and so we come in faith, and we come in repentance to him. That's why Matthew narrates that strange story of those men from the East, the man, the Magi, as far ethnically and religiously removed from the Jews as one can imagine. Now this grace of God, this compassionate heart of the Father will extend far beyond the historic boundaries of the literal descendants of Abraham, even to the ends of the earth. We are all invited to come And find forgiveness in him. And to come to worship the king who has been born. So friends, if you know your own deceitful heart. For those Israelites of old are not different to us. They just represent us in our deceitfulness. Well then as we acknowledge that. We find one who because of grace. His own heart is filled with compassion towards us. He's come to save you and me. That's why he was born. Second, verses 16 to 18, Jesus comes to comfort a crushed people. I anticipated this part of the passage in the introduction with its dreadful relevance and the unfolding tragedy in Israel and Gaza. But here, the Magi outwitted Herod, and Herod is murderously enraged. And again, Matthew quotes from a prophet, this time Jeremiah, Uh, for Herod's actions fulfill scripture as well. Now even saying that uh, is difficult for the Lord permits unspeakable suffering in the fulfillment of this and many of his promises. Uh, For today uh, I think all we can do is echo the words of Peter after many had turned away because Jesus in a different context in John 6 uh, had been uh, teaching things that people had been offended by such was the hardness of his teaching and Peter said Lord to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm not saying these things are easy, but I am saying this is where God is speaking to us. And there's no one else to whom we may go for this word of grace and promise today. Uh, So again, if you've gone back to uh, Matthew chapter 1, turn back uh, to your Old Testaments, uh, this time to page 792. And we're going to do the same thing in the prophet Jeremiah, uh, from which uh, Matthew then quotes now if you do read Jeremiah 31 as a whole, uh, which sadly we don't have time to do this morning, uh, you will find it a great blessing uh, and you will discover, uh, if you find it, uh, verse 15 of Jeremiah 31 uh, is uh, the verse that Matthew quotes about Rachel and the mourning and so on, uh, is pretty much the only negative note in the entire chapter. Well, that's striking in itself, isn't it? Matthew has deliberately chosen the lowest point of a chapter that is pregnant with promise and hope. He knows what he's doing because he wants us to understand that broader context in Jeremiah as well. And the context in Jeremiah is very similar to that which it was in Hosea because you repeat a point when it's important and you want it to settle into the hearts of your hearers. Again, the people have turned away from God. And again, the Lord has brought a message of judgment through the prophet. The people will go into exile. Again, we're centuries before the coming of Jesus. And so Jeremiah 31.15, hopefully you've found that now, uh, describes Rachel, the favorite wife of Jacob, uh, and so the matriarch of Israel mourning for her children as her descendants are marched off into exile. Rachel was a particularly appropriate she herself had died on the way to the promised land. Her last words recorded in scripture are full of sorrow. But death in childbirth sealed her love for her children and made her the one that people turned to as, as it were, the one who really understood grief and suffering. But now widen the lens to see the context in which the verse that Matthew quotes is set. Just look at verse 10 in Jeremiah 31 and following. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Do you hear that? That's what Matthew wants us to see as he quotes that verse. Yes, there is misery, deep dark misery now but i will turn their mourning into gladness i will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow in other words perhaps choose words more familiar to us from revelation 21 the old order of things will pass away for the lord will come and ransom and redeem his people weeping and mourning, and death, and destruction, and war, and chaos, and disease, will not have the last word for those who are in Jesus Christ. Because he's come. Here is my son, the Lord says. And as he says of himself later in Matthew's gospel, with the cross in view, and remember the promise the prophet brought, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, for the multitudes, for all who would come. The Lord has come to comfort a crushed people. And if you're still here in Jeremiah 31, on the other side of verse 15, look at verse 17. So there is hope for your future. Or verse 20, echoing what we've already heard in Hosea, Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. And how does the Lord show his compassion? Uh, We'll read on to the end of the chapter, verses 31 and following. Tell us of the new covenant that the Lord will make with his people. And remember, this is the message that goes to the distant coastlands, all the way even to Britain, uh, with this good news of a new covenant that God is making through his son, Jesus Christ, he will renew our hearts, he will be our God, we shall know him, for the Lord declares, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What does God say to us when we turn on the news, when we live with our own, our televised tragedies, weariness and brokenness in our lives? He says, here is my son. He comes to rescue a rebellious people. He comes to comfort a crushed people. He comes both to wash away our sins and to wipe away our tears. And how does he do it? Well, third, he comes as the Nazarene. Verse 19, we're back in in Matthew 2 now. You must have wondered if we'd ever get back to the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 2, we're back there now. Um, Verse 19, Herod dies uh, he dies a death too horrible to recount in a sermon, uh, but like all megalomaniacs, he's the only one who's surprised by his mortality. Uh, there's another dream. Joseph Julia obeys and returns with the family to Israel. That starts out presumably for Bethlehem. That's where they'd come from, of course, uh, where they'd fled from, but there's a problem because Herod the great's son Archelaus was ruling there and he was already known to be both ruthless and incompetent. Uh, Rome didn't tolerate him for long. Uh, So with a uh, combination of thoughtful assessment and divine guidance through a final dream, Joseph diverts the family camel to their original hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. And Matthew concludes, So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now you're anticipating me saying, right, now let's turn back. Well, we're not going to. uh, Because in no part of the Old Testament do we find those words as a prophecy. And great men, far cleverer than I, have scratched their heads and written PhDs about this. But I think the clue is that Matthew says prophets, plural. In other words, this isn't one specific quote he's looking for us to find. What he's saying is that the prophets as a whole paint a picture of someone who will have no great earthly pedigree or status. Indeed, he will be someone who is despised and rejected by the great and the powerful And the good. That, after all, given that he's just quoted Hosea and Jeremiah, was precisely what happened to those men who brought the word of God to their generation. And now here is the word of God in person. Will it be any different when he comes? Well, no. Just as those earlier prophets suffered profoundly for their faithfulness to the Lord, so it will be in the one who comes in fulfillment of their prophecy. Well, we might think of a passage like Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Something like that lies behind this term Nazarene. It's always a tricky thing to illustrate this, so I'm not going to choose any particular place because doubtless someone here or on the YouTube will come from there and will be grievously insulted that I've said, well, you know when this person comes from such and such a place, people sigh and raise their eyebrows and make all sorts of conclusions about them. Well, we know the sort of places that people say those sort of things about. You instinctively have a picture as soon as they mention their hometown, and it's not a flattering one of the place, and therefore of the person who is now introducing themselves to you. Well, that's Nazareth in first century Israel. And we know that because of a number of references elsewhere in the New Testament itself. So in the beginning of John's Gospel, Nathaniel exclaims, Nazareth? can anything good come from there? That was what Nazareth was known like in Jesus' day. Or oh, when Paul is on trial and accused of being, uh, quote, a ringleader of the Nazarene sect in Acts 24, you feel the sting. It's not meant to be a compliment. He's associating Paul, the great learned rabbi, with an obscure backwards uh, part of Israel, full of savagery and no great learning. We can write these people off because they're from Nazareth. And well, it's a deliberate and contrasting bookend to the start of Matthew's gospel in the genealogy. See, there we learned, didn't we, that Jesus is the son of Abraham, through whom God will keep his promises to bless all humanity. He's the son of David, through whom God will rule over all creation. He's the Christ, the Messiah, that come to save us and to be Emmanuel, God with us. But he doesn't look like it to outward appearance. So if you think following Jesus is going to make you look good or get in with the in crowd, look elsewhere. His friends were ordinary people. His apostles, working men. His followers were often from the dregs of society. His greatest achievement and fulfillment of his eternal calling was to be nailed to a cross. He said that our calling was to serve others. To count ourselves as nothing, to lay our lives down and to carry our own cross. You want earthly glory and people to be impressed? Follow Herod, not Jesus. But if you know you're a spiritual failure, he'll be your friend. Because he comes to rescue rebellious people. He comes to wash away our sins. Return to the Lord, say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. And he will, right now, today. And if you know the cruelty and sadness of this world, and despair of ever finding hope, come to him, and he'll be your friend. He comes to comfort crushed people. He comes to wipe away our tears. In him there is hope for our future. He's the Nazarene. He's the Son of God. He's our Saviour. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this word that Matthew has brought us, the way he's opened our eyes to those promises from long before fulfilled not only in your coming, but even in your going and returning from Egypt. Please, Lord Jesus, would you draw us to yourself? Would you bring us to your cross that we may find forgiveness? Would you open your heart to us that we may know your mercy and your compassion? Please, would you humble us? Please, would you call us to follow you, that we too may live but through faith in you to your Father's glory.
0: And we ask it in your name. Amen.